You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So this morning, we're going to continue through the book of Psalms together as we have this past month and as has become a tradition of our church during the summer that we take a break from our regular series and spend some time looking at the Psalms. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be one in one of the baskets and the chairs in front of you. And the Psalms are close to the middle of the book. Don't be afraid of the table of contents. Um, And as we've mentioned over and over again the past few weeks, have we looked in the Psalms? The Psalms are the prayer and songbook of the people of God. They run the emotional gamut from sorrow and sadness to anger and joy. There's songs of lament, songs of thanksgiving. But of these 150 psalms, this morning we will be in Psalm 93. And as you turn to Psalm 93, you'll see that it's a pretty short psalm. It just has five verses. And before we read it, I want to point out two things that I want you to keep in mind as we do read this short psalm. The first of which is the scope of time that the psalm covers. The psalm goes from eternity in the past to eternity in the future. The psalm reminds us of what God has done to give us strength for the present and to assure us of what God will do. And the second thing that I want you to notice is how the verses alternate from talking about God to talking to God. The psalmist states something true and he can't help but respond but in worship and praise of God. And because we're so prone to forget, our hearts must be reminded of the truth of who God is and of what he's done. This is why we gather together every week or meet with one another throughout the week as we're able to, because we need to remind and encourage one another with the good news of what God has done for us through Jesus. And when our hearts are pierced with that truth, we respond with worship. So let us read Psalm 93 together. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. The psalmist is facing something terrible here. Whatever this storm of their life right now, it's threatening to overwhelm them, to drown them. They feel like the water is coming up and they're sinking. Right now, you may feel that way, that the flood is rising around you, that you've been battered to and fro by the torrents and waves crashing into you again and again and again, filled with sorrow and pain. And with the thunders of all these waters, you feel that as you cry out, no one would even hear you. And I'm sorry if that's 
where you're at right now. And you may not be there, but maybe you have been in the past. And if you haven't, living in this broken world marred by sin, you will. Some of you have faced many such storms. And some of these storms are things that happen externally in our lives to us or to those that we love, and sometimes these storms are internal to us. Sometimes there's seemingly no reason. Sometimes we can see the reason. Sometimes we bring them about ourselves. Sometimes others do them to us. These storms are dark, chaotic, and disorienting. And for ancient Israel in the Bible and for other ancient Near Eastern cultures, like waters and the sea, that's exactly what they symbolized. What they symbolized chaos, death, sin, sorrow, pain, disorder. And when we're surrounded by such a sea, in these dark and chaotic storms of life, our natural response and the sinful disposition of our hearts is to think, God's not in control. God has failed. God has left me. God doesn't love me. God has forgotten me. God can't even see what's going on. God's evil. God isn't even real. And in our confusion and desperation, we turn away from God to try to find our own security and stability in the storm. And in the midst of chaos, I want to ask, who or what do you look to for help and for hope? As you begin to contemplate that question, I want us to take a step back from this passage. Zoom out and summarize two things that'll help us to understand some of the things that the psalmist is doing here. So the two things we're going to look at is, briefly, the story of the Bible as a whole, and the story of the book of Psalms as a whole. Whenever we come to a passage of scripture to try to understand its meaning, one of the things we always need to keep in mind is its context both in the text around it, but also where it lies in the individual book and where it lies in this whole thing as a whole. Taking things into account like that is particularly important for this psalm because that's what the psalmist is doing. He's going back to the beginning, to creation, and then he's looking forward to what God will do. And so if this morning is the first time you've ever opened a Bible, or even if you've been reading the Bible for decades, the Bible can seem overwhelming and disoriented because of all the different books written by tons of different authors over the course of 1,500 years. Yet all of these stories together form one book with one story by one author. They're like pieces of a puzzle with their own pictures on them that you can look at them and see them and they interlock together to form this great picture. Or this beautiful giant tapestry where all these different images are interwoven and there's common threads running through them, but the whole story is understood by looking at those individual different parts. And the different parts understand, understood in the light of this whole story. So my hope is having this framework in mind will help us to have a map to not feel so lost when we spend time in our Bible. 
But one way of summarizing the whole story of the Bible is this. The Bible is about God building his kingdom, that is, saving humanity from ourselves, and restoring his creation from our corruption through Christ Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll say that again for us. Uh, The Bible is about God building his kingdom, that is, saving humanity from ourselves and restoring his creation from our corruption through Christ Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection by the power of the Holy Spirit. Note that the word Christ, whenever you hear Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, that's not part of his name. It's a title. It means anointed one. It's equivalent to the word Messiah, this promised king, the savior of his people. I say all this, but I'm not an auditory learner. I was a student in class, either just in my own head or sleeping, or once I got to college, I just didn't go to class at all and just read the book instead. Um, So I struggle with remembering things that I've heard, and I confess this even as I'm preaching, I don't think I can remember any quote or point from any sermon I've ever heard, Um, unless it was tied to some kind of illustration or visual that metaphors, illustration, imagery, and feelings, those are what stick with me. For example, last month, Pastor Jonathan showed us these pictures of his old German shepherd to illustrate the pastoral responsibilities of elders. I don't think I'll ever forget that. Um, So because of that, I want to show us just two quick napkin illustrations to help us remember what the story of the Bible is. I've picked them up from various sources, and the first one, it's simply an arrow. The story begins with God, in the beginning, creating all things good, humanity committing treason by rejecting his kingship, saying we're going to rule ourselves. The resulting corruption spreads to all of creation, but God in his loving mercy and grace promises to rescue humanity and restore all of creation, and he starts working towards doing so. And he makes all these promises, And all the promises of God found in the part of the Bible that we call the Old Testament, they find their fulfillment in Jesus in the New Testament. Or stated this way in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. The second illustration to help you remember this overall story is a wheel. I made this in MS Paint, so bear with me. Um, (laughs) um, So, The rim of the wheel is the kingdom of God, and the wheel is moving because the kingdom of God is advancing. This is the theme that all the other themes fit into. It's the thematic framework. And at the hub of the wheel is the heart of the story. It's Christ Jesus, around who all the story revolves around. And what holds the framework to the hub and all of this together are the scriptures. And we see this in both Jesus's and the Apostle Paul's teaching. Uh, Paul summarizes, or they summarize the story this way. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, Luke chapter 24, it says this. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, that the scriptures are about him. And then later on, Luke 24, 44, then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Or Paul, in the end of the book of Acts, 
uh, he's speaking to this group of Jewish leaders, and they appoint a day for Paul. Um, they come to him at his lodging in greater numbers, and from morning to evening, he expounds to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So we, hear, we, we see here these three parts of the wheel. We see the kingdom of God is this overarching theme. At the hub, at the center of the story is Jesus. Everything revolves around him. And the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, um, holds everything together. So you'll, you'll notice that the wheel has three spokes. This is because the Hebrew Bible is divided into three parts, traditionally. The law, the prophets, and the writings. And since the book of Psalms is traditionally the first book in the writings, often the Psalms is just used as shorthand to refer to that section. The New Testament mirrors that structure, that we have the four Gospels, we have Acts, and then we have all these letters to various churches and people. And these three different parts are split up into three different categories of covenant. Um, when we think of the covenant section, the main questions are, what has God done? And how have God and his people committed themselves to one another? And then there's the covenant history section. And when we look at that, uh, the questions that it answers is, all right, so we've made these commitments. How has this actually played out? And God shows that he is faithful, even when we are unfaithful. And then the covenant life section answers the questions, how are we supposed to live in light of everything that God has done, what God has promised to do? And so I could take a long time and expound on this further, but it took Paul a whole day, and I would take much longer, so I don't have time for that. <laughs> so to recap, the summary of the Bible is about God building his kingdom that is saving humanity from ourselves, restoring all of creation through what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection by the Holy Spirit. So in light of the story of the Bible as a whole, we then come to the book of Psalms. It is in this covenant life section meant to teach us about how we live in light of what God has done. It's pointing us to Jesus in some manner, and it's showing how God is advancing his kingdom. So the second summary that we should keep in mind when looking at any passage of scripture is the, okay, what's this whole story of this individual book about? And so if we go back, thinking about the wheel illustration, um, and the Psalms are in this covenant life section, and so it's trying to teach us how to live. But the Psalms aren't just a randomized collection of poetry. Uh, they were arranged to tell a story themselves. And the first two psalms lay out what this story will be. Psalm 1 tells us that the purpose of the psalms is to lead us to experience the blessed life that God intends for us in creation and redemption. And then Psalm 2 tells us what the message of the psalms is, that our God is king, and our king is coming to transform our suffering into glory and to bless all those who take refuge in him with life. And this is actually like very similar to the whole story of the Bible as a whole. In fact, the Psalms are a poetic telling of God's redemptive work. And we can see this in how the Psalms are laid out, that the Psalms are laid out in these five different sections or mini books in a way. 
that God establishes and appoints a king. He promises a future messianic king. And then we come to section three, and there's this crisis of faith. That it seems that there is no king, that they're in exile. And they're waiting in hope, but they're starting to doubt. And then we get to book four, and book four starts to answer that. It tells us that God's people are called to faithfulness in the seeming absence of the king. It reminds us that even though it may seem that darkness reigns, the Lord is the one on the throne. And then section five has the more wisdom part of the Psalms that tells us how to live out our faith as we await this coming of the king. And then the whole book crescendos in these last five psalms of praise with incredible bands again and again to alleluia, to praise the Lord. And so when we take into account the story of the psalms as a whole, Psalm 93 comes towards, right towards the beginning of section 4. Like Section 4, which is calling us to faithfulness in the seeming absence of the king, it starts off with Psalm 90, which follows the two darkest psalms of the Bible, in Psalms 88 and 89. The final words of Psalm 88, the psalmist says, my only friend and companion is darkness. And Psalm 89 ends with the psalmist asking God, where is your love and faithfulness? And he commands God to remember the sorrows of his people. And so when we find Psalm 93 near the section, beginning of section 4, it's meant to remind us that even though it may seem that darkness reigns, the Lord is on the throne. And so as the story shifts here at this point in the book of Psalms, there's also a shift in the kinds of Psalms that we see. In the first three books or sections of the Psalms, Psalms of lament outnumber psalms of praise about two to one. And here the balance starts to shift. That God is showing us that he is transforming our suffering into glory and it's turning our mourning into dancing. And so I want us to go back to the question I asked earlier now that we've placed where the psalms are, where the psalm is. So in the midst of chaos, who or what do you look to for help and hope. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, the Israelites face hardship, and they start to doubt God, and they turn away from him. They start worshiping other gods again and again. And the psalmist here, he grounds the psalm in the creation account. The creation account was written as dialogue with these other creation accounts of these other cultures. And he calls us to remember this creation account, to remind them that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is mightier than the gods of these other cultures. So the main gods of Canaan and Babylon, in order to gain their throne, they had to go to war against these other gods. And they had to destroy the god of the sea, of chaos, And yet here, in the beginning, Yahweh's clothed with strength itself. And he simply speaks to the sea and contains the waters. And he's been reigning on his throne since the beginning. And he rules over even these waters of chaos. Where unlike the gods of Egypt who emerged out of these primordial waters, 
Yahweh is the I am, the eternal one, the self-existent, and he's distinct from the sea, who was and is and is to come and is unchanging. So just as the Israelites were tempted to worship the gods of the culture around them, we're tempted in the same way. I turn to rely on myself when I face hardship. Try to rely on my own strength, try to bear my own sorrows and pains and silent tenacity, thinking that who I am and what I'm dealing with is too much for God or for others. I dive into the struggles of others to hide my own, to avoid and escape from my own. And this last year, as I've dealt with the pain of my mom and my grandma fighting cancer, I've tried to fill my schedule to the brim with work and ministry to avoid bringing that to God, rather than resting and trusting in him. So what do you do? Where do you turn? Do you turn to yourself, to work, to politics, to your family, to pornography, to alcohol, to relationships, to conspiracy theories, to binging entertainment, achievements? Where do you go for security, for comfort, for escape? Whoever or whatever it is we turn to, it will fail us. Maybe it helps for a time. Maybe it does bring us to calmer waters, but it doesn't stop another storm from coming, that it's appearing suddenly on the horizon. That when we're in a chaotic sea of pain and death where a storm can appear at any moment, the solution isn't to try to keep swimming, trying to keep finding calmer waters until we exhaust ourselves and drown anyway. The solution is to get to land solid ground. And thankfully, there is one who can bring us to this land of rest, one who faced the sea of chaos and calamity, who was assailed by the torrents of sin and sorrow, who passed through the waters of death itself and conquered them, one who stood victoriously as he walked on the waters, standing on the seas, subjecting them under his feet, one who calms the chaos with just a word. The King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus. So remember the words we sang earlier, that in Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. In the chaotic storms of life and death, our only hope is Jesus. So cling to him in the chaos. And you'll find security and stability for the storm and the strength of our Savior. In fact, like, when a follower of Christ is baptized, that's what we're celebrating. That Jesus has brought us through the sea of chaos and death into new life in him. We see this in how God brings creation out of the waters of chaos in Genesis 1. How he carries Noah through the flood. How he splits apart the sea and brings Moses and the Israelites through the sea as they're pursued by the enemy into safety. How as he brings Joshua and the next generation into the promised land, he stops the river. In baptism, we declare and remember all that Jesus has done for us 
and bringing us from death into life and making us new, cleansing us from sin and leading us from chaos into peace. And yet we are so prone to forget this, to forget the truth of who God is and what he's done for us. A few months ago in our series in the Gospel of Matthew, when we were in chapter 14, we looked at the story of Jesus walking on the water. He tells Peter to come to him upon the waters. But when Peter turns from looking and beholding Jesus, he starts to look at the storm, he begins to sink. He becomes afraid, he starts to doubt. He begins to sink, and as he does, he cries out to the Lord, save me! And Jesus doesn't leave him to drown. He's not overwhelmed by the storm. Instead, he takes Peter by the hand, lifts him up into the boat, into solid ground, and he calms the winds. So in the storms of life and death, you may start to fear. You may start to doubt God. But Jesus won't leave you there. Cry out to him, and he'll bring you safe to shore. And the psalmist recognizes our forgetfulness and reminds us of what God has done. He takes us back to the very beginning when God created all things by the power of his word. He reminds us that the word of God, he is firm. His decrees can be trusted. When God says something, he means it. He is holy and unlike all else, anything else, and the fact that he keeps his word and is actually able to do and will do everything he says that he will do. When God promises that he will make a way for the sins of his people to be forgiven, that the penalties of their transgressions would be paid for, he doesn't just say that and bounce, leaving us with the debt. No. He gives us the receipts that Jesus goes to the cross. He takes on the sins of his people and he dies and is raised to new life showing that everything is completely paid for. And when the father adopts his people, his children, into his family as his sons and his daughters, nothing and no one can snatch them from his hand. This kingdom that he is building, made up of his family, his, his house, the psalmist says, will last forevermore. Truly, the decrees of God are trustworthy. He has always been faithful and has never forsaken his promises. He will not leave his people to drown in the sea of chaos. And he's mightier than those waters. He rules over them. And the vision that the Apostle John sees in the book of Revelation, the sea is mentioned a few times. One of these times is in Revelation chapter 4, that he's looking in the heavens and he sees the throne of God. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there, were, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. This is the vision of God reigning now. And before his throne, the sea is not chaos. It's still. It's glass. And it's underneath his feet. When we're in the middle 
of the sea of chaos, and it feels like we're drowning. We can trust that God is in control. He is somehow at work, even in the pain and sorrow of this world, to bring about good for his people, for those who love him. And we can also have hope that one day, the sea of chaos will be eradicated. It will be no more. At the end of John's vision, he says this in Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And all your pain, and all your sorrows, and all your fears, and all your doubts, Cling to Christ in the chaos. The God of creation, who is mighty enough to contain the chaos of the seas simply with his word, the power of his voice, he sent his word, Jesus, into this broken and chaotic world to take the sins of his people upon him and go down with them into the depths to die. But he was raised by the Spirit, and he conquered the chaos of sin and death, and he brings his beloved into new life with him. And when he says that he is with us, for if he is called Emmanuel, God with us, we can trust that he is both on the throne reigning and in control, and with us in the storms of chaos, even when it seems that we're all alone. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are prone to doubt. We forget what you've done for us. We don't believe you will do or even can do what you say you will do. Spirit, in your grace and mercy, remind us of the truth of who you are. Help us to combat the lies. Turn our hearts from seeking after our own security and stability, to rest and to trust in you. God, if it seems as if the floods right now are lifting around us, comfort us. Grant us peace that surpasses all understanding. Give us the ability to weep with those who weep. And encourage us with the hope that you are at work to restore all things. And Jesus, through you all things were made. You have been in communion with your Father from eternity, yet you chose to leave your throne to enter into our broken world of chaos and of sin, to become like us, 
to be with us. And you bore our sins and our sorrows. You paid the penalty we deserved. And you rose to give us life. God, you are truly holy, holy, holy. Worthy of all honor and praise. And your decrees are very trustworthy. And holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Amen. Amen.